So we're going to be in John chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 37. Um, we're not going to be able to go in depth in all of these uh, verses, but we'll, we'll definitely want to read the account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his trials, his scourging, the crucifixion. And the title of the study is For Our Transgressions, which is really, it's, it's answering a question. Why is Good Friday good F- for our transgressions. He died for our transgressions. And so it wasn't good for the Lord in the sense that he suffered. It was good in the sense that the plan that he had to save was fulfilled and that he died for our transgressions. It's on Passover that this took place, and we'll talk more about that later. But as we head into this, just keep this in mind that Jesus has said to his disciples, in Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Lord was looking forward to this communion, this fellowship, this time to speak to them of what this was all about. Every Passover meal that they had experienced for the last 1,500 years as a nation of Israel, what was it for? And it's in this moment that the Lord is able to speak to them and tell them. It's hard to make any sense of Jesus suffering and dying upon the cross unless we understand what the Bible has to say about sin. If we don't understand that sin is punishable by death, it's really hard to understand uh, with clarity why Jesus died. The way it comes down is, well, he was a guy that powerful leaders didn't like, which is true, and we just stopped there and they took his life. But it was so much more than that. As a matter of fact, um, later in the book of Acts, after the resurrection, uh, the apostles in their prayers quotes from the Psalms and says that these leaders did whatever your hand had determined beforehand that should be done. And so this is not just about rogue leaders gone astray and killing another good guy that doesn't line up with what they want and what they have to say. This is about the Lord. This is about the Lord fulfilling what the Father has determined. Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary being the the mother of Jesus, was told before Jesus was ever born that he would save his people. Luke 1, verse 21. I know I, I sent you to John chapter 19, and we will get there, but I want to got probably six or seven verses we're going to look at before we get into the text of John 19. But in Matthew 1, 21, it says, And she will bring forth the Son, Jesus, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from his people from their sins. That's an odd announcement to receive upon finding out Um, that the Messiah was coming. He's going to save them from their sins. What is sin? Well, sin is a willful and an unintentional departure from God's commands for our lives. It's when we do what we want to do, whether we do it um, knowingly or whether we do it unknowingly. And of course, sin is something that every person has committed. Romans 3.23 says, All of sin, all fall short of God's glorious standard. We disobey our parents, we lie, we steal, we are covetous people, we are materialistic, sexual immorality, murder. All of these things speak of our falling into sin. And so sin is a universal problem. It is the ultimate pandemic. It is the ultimate disease 
and the Lord himself provided his son as a cure for it. It's, it's not a, a defect that only manifests itself in some races, some nationalities, and some religious persuasions. It is across the board. All people have sinned. All people have fallen short of the standard that God has for them. Well, what is the impact? Okay, so Jesus came to die for sin. Uh, the angel told that to Joseph. All have sinned, and we know what this sin is. We just talked about it. But what is the impact? What is the consequence of sin? Well, Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Distance. Separation. Here's a, you know, we talk about social distancing. Well, here's spiritual distancing. Why was God separated from us? Because of the disease called sin. And so it alienates us from God. Furthermore, uh, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin, rebelling against God and doing what we want to do, separates us from the Lord and brings about death. That verse right there, um, Romans 6.23, it answers for us um, the consequences of sin. Um, and it keeps us from experiencing the blessings that the Lord wants to pour out upon our life. So it's not that it just has a negative impact of separating us from God and causing physical death, but it also keeps us from good. Jeremiah 5.25 says, Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. So you, you see, the Lord has a blessing that he wants to pour out, and it's, it's something that is not. I don't know if we're able to put the slides up there, but it's uh, Jeremiah 5.25 that um, actually has it. I don't know if we're having a technical difficulty back there, but um, I know you're sitting there, and it's a little easier to have these popping up. But how can, man, how can mankind deal with this sin problem? How can he um, deal with this separation? How can he deal with this death? How can he deal with those things that have kept good from coming to us? Well, there's only one way, and that is through the shedding of innocent blood. You see, sin, the, uh, the vaccine, the antidote for it, it is the blood of an innocent person. That's a problem because all have sinned. So where are you going to find innocent blood from? If all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and it's through this alone that we are able to have our sins forgiven, what do we do? Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, Almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no way for your sin to be forgiven apart from the shedding of blood. And so now we begin to understand what Joseph was saying when he said to, uh, what the angel said to Joseph, that the Messiah, this Jesus, this, this baby that your uh, fiancé is carrying, born of a virgin, she is carrying one that will deal with sin. And this is what was going on in the temple every day, every night and day at the temple. They were offering up the uh, goats and lambs and um, bulls and oxen. They were all being offered up. Why? For sin. The blood was being shed. And if they didn't shed blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. 
But that these sacrifices are insufficient is evident because they had to what? Continually offer up sacrifices. It wasn't that this goat or this lamb was the purest of all and now we're good. No, daily, repeatedly, all day long. They had to offer sacrifices because although it foreshadowed and it's what the Lord had established, it was a constant reminder that they needed to have their sins forgiven. When Jesus was beginning his ministry, now a grown man, and his cousin John, John the Baptist, out baptizing people, preparing people and getting their hearts ready to receive the Messiah, we read in John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here we see it. The angel said to Joseph, He will deal with the sins of Israel. But it's not just the sin of Israel. It's all people. And then Jesus died and he took away. But he is that lamb, that perfect lamb. 750 years before the Messiah came, there was a suffering that uh, was prophesied. And it's in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 12. And in this chapter, it is so clear that Jesus was the one that was dying on the cross. It's so clear. I, I want to read to you. It's Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 12. Surely he has borne our griefs. This is written 750 years before the life of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. So clear. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. How can that be? How could it be that the Father found pleasure in bruising him? He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus died, and it was foretold hundreds of years before that he would, and that he would die to redeem us. So Good Friday, why is it good? Because the Lord dealt with our sin, a sin problem that it still exists in the world today until each and every person comes to Jesus and they receive him. I don't know if you've received Christ as your Savior and you have forget, asked him to forgive you of your sins. It's a gift that is there for you and you can receive it. 
but you must do that. And we're going to talk about how you do that. But ask yourself this question now. If life was to come to an end, and one day it will for all of us, but if, if the life was to come to an end today for you, do you have certainty that your sins would be forgiven? Have you come and made things right with God through Jesus Christ? Because that is the only way you can do that. Well, as we finally get to our text here in John chapter 19, hopefully as we go through this, it'll make a lot more sense to us knowing why Jesus suffered and why Jesus died. We begin looking there at verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. So the Passover meal has already been celebrated. Jesus has already been arrested in the garden. And now he is before Pilate. He's already gone through the examination and the trials before Caiaphas and others. And now he is before Pilate. So Pilate takes him and he scourges him. Scourging was a tool that the Roman Empire used quite effectively to get a confession. And so what we read, one historian, it's not found in the Bible, but one historian says that the the beatings would begin. And as as they began to uh, lay the whip across the victim's back, that it would become harder and harder and harder unless they gave confession. And in the confessions, it would become softer and softer and softer. So they're, they're trying to elicit a confession of a crime from an innocent man. There is no way that he can say, well, it's to this crime that I've committed because he was that spotless lamb of God. Whether or not this was carried out in Jesus in this manner or not, we cannot say with biblical certainty But we do know that he was scourged so terribly that he was weakened to the point that he was not able to even carry his own cross. But it was a a, a terrible thing that took place. I mean, a a short whip that had bone and metal and glass tied to it. And they would strip the victim, tie their arms over their head, and then begin to scourge them. The effect upon our Savior would have been devastating. But we read that then the soldiers made a crown of thorns, put it on his head, put on him a purple robe, mocking him because he had said that he was the king of the Jews. And it was accused of being the king of the Jews. And that was an accusation that was 100% right. They took the crown of thorns, pressed it into his brow, And there would have been just blood streaming down his face. Here is the king of kings. Here is the creator of the universe. Here is the long promised one. Going all the way back into the garden. The very first uh, uh, promise of salvation. The proto-evangelium as it's called. The first gospel message. The first announcement. And that Jesus would crush the head of Satan. And... um, and then bring salvation that would come through the seed of the woman. And this is happening. And look at what is taking place to him. A robe placed on him. And then they struck him with their hands. And there's two words that I want to draw your attention to in verse 3. It's the word said and the word struck. Both of these 
are Greek verbs that are called the imperfect. Now you have a couple of different words that are used for um, past tense action. You have um, an aorist, which kind of would, and I'm simplifying, it would speak of an event that happened um, like at a point in time. Think of taking a picture. You take a snapshot. That event happened. Um, the other one is imperfect. And the imperfect is not like, a, like a, a camera snapshot. It's like a movie reel that has continual action taking place. It's all looking to the Mac. Well, when we read, then they said, and they struck him, it's the imperfect, meaning that they didn't just say, hell, king of the Jews, and strike him one time. It was a continual repeated action that was taking place. Jesus was being mocked continually, and he was being pummeled by these brutal Roman guards. They struck him with his hands. Isaiah 50 verse 6 tells us, I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And so the prophet Isaiah fills in for us a little bit more of what took place. That he was having his beard ripped out. What, he was having his face um, punched. He was being spat upon. It's like a demonic rage fell over these soldiers. Here's an innocent man, not reviling, not screaming for help. Just an innocent man, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He is silent. And these guys have a demonic attack come over them. And Jesus is bearing the brunt of it. So abused. We know that they were uh, punching him. But in another account, that they had blindfolded him. Meaning that he couldn't see where the next punch was coming to. He couldn't have any opportunity to recoil, to lessen the blow whatsoever. In verses 4 through 6, still in John 19, we continue on. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Again, they had scourged him. The scourging was meant to elicit confessions to crime. Rome often had many mystery crimes solved through scourgings. They found out who did it. But he says, through scourging, we found nothing out. Then Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. There's some indication in classical Greek literature that when this phrase was used, it was, behold this poor man. Behold, look at what has happened. It was a, almost a word of compassion. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him. In other words, that's not enough. The scourging and the beating and the crown of thorns, that is not enough. And in one sense, they were 100% right. It was not enough. He had not fully atoned for our sin. Jesus could not at this point say, it is finished. That's coming. So although they say it with rage and hatred, and unbelief, there is an ironic truth to what they are saying. It wasn't enough that he was scourged. Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Which Pilate knew full well they could not crucify. They were not the ruling power. And their law called for 
stoning, not crucifixion. But we know that the prophets had said that he would be crucified, or at least they described perfectly the crucifixion. He was examined and found guiltless. Peter, some 50 days from now, is going to stand up in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, another Jewish feast, and he is going to proclaim to them that they were responsible for the death of Jesus. That they had taken with their hands and they had crucified him. And that is true. They did. And in a very real sense, every man in the history of the world is responsible Every man's hands have taken and put Jesus Christ upon the cross because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so they are responsible, but we are responsible. Jesus hung on the cross for my sin, for your sin. I can still remember hearing Billy Graham say, every dirty, filthy, rotten, unmentionable sin that has ever been committed was laid upon Jesus. He was responsible in that moment for the sin that had been committed by all of mankind. It's our sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross, and it is our sin that held Jesus Christ to the cross. Remember, Jesus said, No one takes my life. I lay it down. Many times they had tried to take Jesus but they had failed every, every time because his hour had not come. But now, his hour of glorification, as this hour is called by John, has finally come. In verses 7 through 9, Pilate questions Jesus again. Then Jesus answered him, We have a law. Actually, then the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power. There's that imperfect verb again. <laughs> you could have no power. All the power you've been exerting is not yours. You could have none of that at all against me, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you, Caiaphas, that would be, has greater sin. Quite, quite an interchange. Pilate is even more afraid. Remember, his wife said, don't do anything to this man. I've been troubled in my dreams. So, you know, they were quite superstitious in this day. You know, they you know, they believe that the gods at times came down among them. And um, so they say he claims to be, you know, the king of the Jews, <laughs> the son of God. His wife had said, I've had a dream about him. He's like more afraid. He's a little freaked out at this situation. But unfortunately, he's more concerned about his, um, his position than he is about really finding out the truth and the identity. And the Lord does not answer him. And so he challenges them. Jesus is like, you want an answer? I'll talk to you. Everything you're doing, you couldn't do it unless you've been allowed to do it. You're not as in control as you think you are. It's verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend, which was an actual status 
that a person was given. And uh, Pilate's um, mentor, if you will, um, had once held that status as the friend of Caesar, but had lost it. And so maybe they, knowing this situation, they really they, they, they draw upon that and they say, you're no friend of Caesar if you allow this. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat, Bema, actually, the Bema, in a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was a preparation day of the Passover. So again, the Passover is going on right now. And about the sixth hour, so that would be noon, he said to the Jews, Behold your king, full of sarcasm. And ironic, because it is exactly who he is. It was truthful. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? I mean, there's sarcasm going on here. But the truthfulness of what is being stated in these words, not in the the tone, but in the words, is spot on. Do you want, you, you Jews, do you want me to crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. So it's during the Passover that all of this is taking place. Approximately 1,500 years earlier, Israel was in bondage there in Egypt. And it came to the last moment to persuade Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go. And so as that hour came, that plague came, the 10th plague, it was a death plague. And so the Israelites were instructed to make certain that this plague would not fall upon them, that they would go and they would sacrifice a spotless lamb. And they would take that lamb and they would, of the, and the blood of the lamb and they would put it on the doorpost and on the lintel. And then as the plague went across the land of Egypt, wherever the blood of the lamb was found, the plague would pass over and there would be no death experienced by the Israelites. But among the Egyptians, they did not take the blood of the lamb. And so they felt in devastating um, uh, fashion the death plague. Pharaoh himself heard and experienced this in his own family, as did every Egyptian. And so they were preserved from death. Death passed over. And it's in this feast that was to look forward. Jesus said, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Because he is the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. And wherever his blood is shed and is received and is brought upon a person's life, death, that eternal death, will pass over them. Again, we all must come and we must receive the work of Jesus Christ and the lamb and the work of the blood. We just sang that song, that it's the blood of Jesus. Well, in verses 17 through 27, we see that Jesus is finally sentenced and put upon the cross. And he, verse 17, bearing his cross, went out to a place place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was 
Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Yeah, Pilate knew where he was from. He was from Nazareth. But I think when Pilate said, where are you from? Having just heard that he was the son of God, I wonder if he's thinking, are you from heaven? Who, who are you? Well, he writes this down, and we read in verse 20, that many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. In other words, everybody was going to know what this man was on the cross for. To put the, they, would, they would write a, a placard, and they would put the crime of the individual, insurrectionist, thief, murderer. Well, what do you put upon the, the, over the head of an innocent man because he's gone through the scourging, he's gone through the trial, and the, the official decree is he is an innocent man. So what do they put upon there? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And that indeed is why they was crucified because they did not want to have him as their king ruling over him. Well, they protested, do not write King of the Jews, but he said, I am, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So it's going to stand and it's not going to come down. You know, dying upon the cross was a humiliating way to go. It was an excruciating way to go. It was the worst of the worst ways to die. But it isn't just the form of the death, which was terrible, and it was. Most people died of asphyxiation. They, they would just, they would, they would uh, suffocate. Um, it was a terrible thing. But it also was reserved for the worst of all criminals. And yet here's the Son of God, the innocent Lamb of God, and he's dying upon the cross. It would be the equivalent to saying that your Savior is one who died in the electric chair. Your Savior is one that was hung. Your, your Savior is one that died at the, the, you know, at the a firing squad or a lethal injection. The same ideas that we feel when we hear of somebody who died in those ways are what they would have felt as they went around proclaiming that Jesus had died upon the cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's a foolish message. You're following a guy that died on the cross for you? Yes, but he died and is an innocent man, and he bore our guilt and shame upon the cross. Oh, it does make sense. And it is the power of God. It's God's way to exert his power to save mankind. The cross was a shameful death, yet our Lord despised the shame and redeemed us. Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, because it's valuable. But it was done, look at this, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. A thousand years earlier, the prophet is saying how the clothes of this crucified man were going to be divided among soldiers. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, 
Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which would be John, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. It's really interesting. It's not that Mary doesn't have other children. Why would Jesus say this? Because in that moment, at that hour, they were not followers of him. They didn't, they thought he had lost his mind and he was crazy. And so John takes up the responsibility of caring for Mary. You know, your mind kind of wonders, what did the conversation sound like with all the other children? But his, history tells us that even as John died in Ephesus, um, uh, you know, modern-day Turkey, that actually Mary, the mother of Jesus, died there as well. And there are two tombs. Whether they're legitimate or not, we don't know. But there are two tombs that are dedicated to both John and Mary. So he, he fulfilled this. And we know that from Scripture. It says, from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So he was looking out for his mom, even in that state. Even in this miserable, dying state, he is looking out for his mother. Quite a story. Well, as Jesus hung on the cross, he would have had nails driven through his hands. He would have had one nail driven through his feet. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: a thousand years before, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. You see, what Jesus went through on the cross was laid out so clearly, so perfectly. Verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, gave up his spirit. He couldn't say that when he was scourged. But he can say it here because he is now about to die. And the phrase, it is finished, it is a Greek word, tetelestai, which means to bring to a close, to pay in full. A servant would use this word to report to his master that the work that he has done was completed. A priest would use this word after examining a lamb that was spotless or blameless and one that was accepted for sacrifice, to Telestai. A writer or an artist would use this upon putting the last period in the sentence or the last stroke of the brush. They would say, to Telestai. Merchants would use this word when the purchaser or the borrower had paid the balance in full. He would say, to Telestai. Jesus had fulfilled what he had been sent to do, and that is to redeem mankind from their sins. Man is redeemed from the consequences of his sin because Jesus died on the cross for him. The Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled. Jesus has done and fulfilled the mission the Lord had given him to do by sending him to this earth to redeem mankind. It's finished in that Satan is defeated and he has no more power. That death is defeated that Jesus is now able to justify mankind. We close here in verses 31 through 37. Therefore, because it was a preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first one and of the other who was crucified with him. 
But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Here's the thing. Why was he, not de- Why was he already dead? Probably because the scourging he went through was terrible. And he had already been exhausted through that process. But one of the soldiers, verse 34, pierced his side with the spear and immediately blood and water came out, which was a sure sign that he had died. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture might, should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon whom they pierced. Pierced. Again, the whole idea of the crucifixion. Not one of his bones should be broken. You see, in Deuteronomy, it's told that when they would take the Passover lamb and they would put it to death, they could not offer up a lamb whose bones had been broken. And Jesus, not one of his bones were going to be broken. And so he died before they would have. Why would they break uh, the legs? Because they, the, the victim on the cross would push up with their legs to relieve the pressure that was upon their lungs through their ribcage, pressing down on it, and they couldn't breathe. So if they wanted to breathe, they had to press up on that spike through their foot. If they broke their legs, they could no longer press up and take a breath, and thus they would suffocate and die much sooner. The cross stands as a symbol. God hates sin, (laughs) but God loves us. If you wanted to express your complete hatred of something and wrath, and yet at the same moment express your complete love and devotion, how would you do that in a single act? It's hard to think of a way to do that. And yet God did this. He shows his hatred for sin and yet his love for mankind as Jesus died upon the cross, providing us forgiveness of sin. To the believer, we should be reminded of what Peter said. If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Live a righteous way knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. For you. God knew from the foundation of the world that his son would die to redeem you, to redeem me. How do you receive this redemption? Well, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Jesus has done all of the hard work. Is it easy to be saved? Well, it depends on whose perspective you're looking from. For us, yes, it's easy. We must simply confess And believe in the hard work of Jesus on the cross as being what we need to have our sins forgiven. If you have yet to receive Christ as your Savior, you can simply confess that Jesus is Lord, Master. That he died for your sins and he rose from the dead. And you will be saved and you will not be put to shame. In other words, on the last day, when you pass from this life, you'll be welcomed into heaven. And you will not be ashamed of the decision you made to follow Jesus Christ. We're going to share in communion now. The worship team can come back up. So if you have your elements to share in communion, I encourage you to go and get those. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to eat of the bread. We're going to drink of the cup, reminding us that Jesus died, that his body was broken, not bones, but that it was ripped apart, and that the blood that he shed was to redeem us of our sins. Now, if you are that one that has not followed Jesus Christ yet, I want to lead you in a prayer, and then we're going to read the account that Jesus shared with his disciples in that Last Supper. If you are that one that needs to receive Christ as your Savior, to have your sins forgiven, all you need to do is simply say, Lord, forgive me. I believe that you are the one that died for my sin and you rose from the dead that I might have eternal life. Would you please forgive me and receive me that I might have my sins washed away, that I might have eternal life. Thank you that you died for me. Help me to follow you and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Amen.